Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello again. I've called this Truth Talk, The Man in the Middle, subtitled, The Real Focus of Easter. All right, so Easter weekend is upon us again. Now, I don't much like the term Easter, but so many people refer to Passover weekend by that name that uh, let it stand right, for now at least. I want to talk to you about a typical Sunday service over the Easter weekend. See the scene played out at countless Sunday services throughout the world. The place is packed with three types of attendees normally. They are the committed followers of Jesus, the Christmas and Easter attendance only religious folk, you know what I'm talking about, and the reluctant agnostic relatives sort of coming along to be polite to their family. Some services are preceded by a sort of a hushed time of religious respect, but most are abuzz with happy and vocal people. The place is full of, he has risen, and then the response, he has risen indeed, accompanied by a brotherly hug, or some people just say a simple happy Easter, and then they Shake hands briskly. Then there are the happy hymns or hand clapping accompanied spiritual songs with vigor and joy. And then the preacher takes central stage. Now, likely as not, he or she speaks about how Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we might have life. You know, all variations on that theme. So now my question is, how do the three types of attendees at the service respond to this sort of message? Well, the hopefully largest group will respond with nods, beaming faces, and silently or proclaimed amens, that's the followers of Jesus crowd. The Christmas and Easter brigade will most likely respond with sort of self-satisfied semi-smiles, manifesting a comfortable and pious, I don't really care because I'm a good religious person, you know, attitude. The third group, the reluctant relatives group, the agnostics. Well, they either don't care or they silently disagree with the gospel message. And both of these last two groups, the C of E's and the agnostics, do not believe that they are sinners, actually. So what's all this stuff about Jesus dying for their sins if they're not sinners? I, I don't think they can even truly define sin. Sometimes I wonder if Christians can. I doubt they believe in the reliability of Scripture. And even if they did, they don't care much about it anyway. So what should the preacher be telling them that will cause them, those groups, to comprehend and to be open to accepting? Close to the bone. What can you, you and I, be saying to them? When you, a believer, sit at lunch with them afterwards or chat with them on one-on-ones. Well, let me tell you a fairly funny story with a powerful message. A dear friend of mine sent me a rather dated video clip that looked like it was done decades ago. But it's of a man from the front, from a pulpit, telling the following story. He says, One of the two thieves on the cross, to the left, and to the right, you know, they were a thief on each side of Jesus when he was nailed. This one thief arrives at the pearly gates. And the angel on duty asks him why he should let him into heaven. Now he replies that he really doesn't know why. 
And the man had not read the scriptures, and nor had he mixed with sort of church folk in Jerusalem of that day, if you can call them that. He hadn't been baptized, and he wasn't even Jewish. So he just stared blank, blankly at the angel. Now, this flummoxed the angel who called for his superior. An important-looking angel arrived, and he asked the man, Are you not clear on the doctrine of justification by faith, my man? The man gave him that same confused look, and so the boss angel said, so, so why should I let you in? And the man responded, I don't know. But the man on the middle cross said, I should come. Yeah, you see, it's all about Jesus, really, isn't it? So, okay, so it's a mildly funny story, especially in the way the man on the video clip told it, by the way. But it, convey, it conveys a profound truth. You see, it is all about Jesus. It's not about church attendance or observance of sacraments or family affiliation or correct doctrine even. It's about Jesus. Oh, it's the message, surely is, or at least should be, should it be, all about Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the horror of the cross, nor the wonder of the empty tomb, but about the man who hung on the cross and who walked out of the open tomb, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So let's have a look at what Paul had to say about this. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul develops some of the things that I've already been pointing to and in this talk. And here are parts of three verses which I've cobbled together for effect, but if you can check them out, they're right there in the passage. It reads, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. So, in my example of the Sunday, the Easter service on a Sunday, Paul's Jews would equate to the Christmas Easter Brigade in, in our services, and the Gentiles, I guess, would equate to the reluctant agnostic relatives, right? So, to the religiously half-asleep people, nothing short of a palpable miracle will actually wake them up. And to the agnostics, the Jesus died for our sins because the Bible tells us so is foolish naivety to them, boarding on delusion. They need persuasion that relies on more than what to them is an ancient set of stories in what we call the Bible. Now, I understand both of these states because before I was born again of the Spirit at the age of 30, I was an agnostic with a religious family background, so I kind of fit into both those categories. Well, I did then. Well, well, here's the thing. Both the wanted miracle and the persuasively compelling wisdom is found in only one, in Jesus. C consider how Paul counters the two statements that I've already quoted above of his. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he wrote, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
That's 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 2. And again, he wrote, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. So, Jesus' followers will understand the profound doctrines of Easter, hopefully will, but religious and agnostic people need the simple truth of Jesus Christ, accompanied by the miraculous transforming power of the Holy Spirit as he makes it come alive in their spirits, in their hearts and in their lives. So I've got some questions. Three. Here are the questions that uh, I think we need to ask, either as part of a sermon or in a one-on-one discussion about the Easter message. And the first question is, do, do you, my dear friend, do you believe that Jesus was a real historical figure who lived in Palestine, who taught and performed wonderful deeds? Do you believe that? And, you know, the initial response might be skepticism concerning both his existence and his miracles. However, there's quite a bit of non-biblical evidence to offer. And I'm saying non-biblical because if a person doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, what's the use of just quoting a whole bunch of, you know, Paul says, Peter says, James says to him. But there's a lot of non-biblical evidence. For instance, here are just some of the things that early historical figures said about Jesus. And again, they're there for anybody to look up on the internet or to ask chat GPT or whatever. The first is Cornelius Tacitus. He lived around about AD 109. That's a long time ago. And he makes the following reference to Christians and to Jesus. He says, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So he's putting a marker in there that Jesus did live And he did die, and that he was put to death by the Romans. Then there's Lucian of Samosta. He was a second century satirist, also close to the time of Jesus, really. And he wrote scornfully of Christians in the following terms. And by the way, often it is the people who are antagonistic to the message that what they say gives evidence to the reality of the message in the person. He said this, The Christians, you know, worship a man who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. He's again marking historically that Jesus lived and died. Pliny the Younger wrote to Emperor Trajan in AD 112 that the Christians, quote, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before this light when they sang an in alternate verse, a hymn to Christ as to a God. Celsus, Celsus in AD 150 wrote, First, however, I must deal with the matter of Jesus, the so-called Saviour, who not long ago taught new doctrines and was thought to be the Son of God. And then Mara Bar Serapion, a Syrian philosopher, wrote this to his son in AD 70. These are all close to the time of Jesus. And he referred to the wise king of the Jews, whom they put to death. And then there's Josephus. He was a Jewish historian for the Romans. He was a Jew, seconded by the Roman army when they came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. 
They wanted to know the history of the Jewish nation, and Josephus produced it for them. And he referred to Jesus in his book, which we now call the Antiquities, which is dated AD 93. He wrote, Now there was about, about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. So you can see, there is actually quite a bit of non-biblical, historically flagged confirmation that Jesus existed and was extraordinary in so many ways. So, the second and follow-up question we can ask the agnostics and the sleepy religious folk is, do you believe that the Bible is a trustworthy record of what Jesus said and did? In other words, Okay, so Jesus existed. Now, can you believe what the Bible says about him existing and what he said and did? And again, there might be pushback and comments about the Bible's mythical nature. Ah, oh, it was just written by old men and why should I believe it, etc. But once again, there are some simple rejoinders to this. For instance, how about this? There were four different people who wrote four Gospels, each corroborating and amplifying each other and giving different perspectives. Now, in a court of law, the testimony of four witnesses would be overwhelmingly compelling, compelling, especially if there are minor discrepancies and perceived contradictions in their accounts, which, you know, are the mark of an authentic personal witness. If more than one witness gets up and says exactly the same thing in exactly the same words, then the judge is going to look at that and say, ah, there's been collusion here. This is a setup. But four witnesses telling essentially the same story, recounting the same truth, but with sufficient differences to indicate that they were actually observers and recorders of this, is very, very compelling. All right, so in addition to this, there is the recorded witness in the scriptures of Paul and Peter and James to help us understand Jesus and what he said. And there's also compelling evidence that secular history records many martyrdoms of people who believed in the biblical Jesus and put their very lives on the line for this belief. Who dies for something they do not utterly believe to be true? So now this leads to a third question, important one. The question is this. What then does the Bible record Jesus as saying about himself? You see, if Jesus existed... If the Bible is trustworthy about what he said and what he did, then what did he say about himself that we must believe and therefore put our faith in? Well, he said things as follows. And this is not all of them, this is just some of them. He said, I am the Father, the Father is a clear reference to the God of the Jews, Yahweh, I and the Father are one. And it says, and again the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? 
And we are not stoning you for any of these, these miracles, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's in John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. So they're acknowledging that he did great miracles, and they, they, they don't take issue with them on those. But they're saying, hey, by saying, I am the Father or one, you are claiming to be God. They wanted to put him to death for that. Then there's the other account in John 14 where Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow, what a statement. And let me just quote you a third one. Here is Jesus speaking. He says, I'll tell you the truth. Before Abram was born, I am. And now this, they, that's the Jewish Pharisees, picked up stones to stone him. Now they're outraged again. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, unless some people miss the point here, the ascription I am was a huge and accepted ancient Jewish divine ascription. It was part of God's name. I am who I am. It was the most holy pronouncement of, of the dignity, being, and glory of God. And Jesus says, before Abram, the father of the Jewish faith, I am. I guess the most personally relatable of the above quotes is Jesus' response to Philip. Now, this is something we can really share at a personal level with people and they'll understand. So this would be a good example to tell in full to a congregation or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And it's John 14, verse 8 to 11. I, I really suggest you read that. And just, again, probably you've read it many times, probably. Just fill your soul with it. It, it is so, so wonderful. So despite what critics claim, Jesus did declare himself to be God incarnate. How many times have I heard the agnostic or the atheist saying, Ah, oh, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he certainly did several times. So, look, here's some logical conclusions. There's compelling evidence that Jesus Christ lived, right? That he ministered, taught, and died. And at that, this is reliably recorded in the Bible. And that he declared himself to be God himself on earth. And to back this up, Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons, created substance from nothing like uh, wine. You know, he made that out of water and bread from absolutely nothing, just a few little loaves. And he gave a man new eyes, a man that had been born without eyes. He even raised the dead. So this is why he said, this is what he said, recorded in John 14, 11. He said, believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So the logical observation to make is, so my dear friend, surely then we must believe what Jesus, that's God incarnate, said about things like salvation, eternity, commitment, love, faith, hope and so on. Surely, if, we, if you've passed these pointers with this person that you're talking to, either in sermon or one-on-one, -on -one, you know, Jesus existed. The Bible is, is, is reliable. Jesus said that he was God. Everybody believes them. They died for that. He demonstrated with miracles. Surely, surely there's enough evidence to say 
Right then, I better pay attention to what Jesus said, for this is truth and can change my life. What did he say about salvation? Again, let me just give you four out of many. He said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's John 10, 9. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's also in John chapter 10. A third, Jesus said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John 11, 25, 26. And then probably the most famous statement of all we quote so often. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through religion, not through good works, not through sacraments, not through anything, but through Jesus himself, who is the way and the truth and the life. And once again, the most personally applicable account of all these is in John 3, verses 1 to 21. I didn't... I didn't quote it to you here, but I'd really ask you to look it up. It's, it's that lovely, lovely account of where Jesus explains to Nicodemus, the chief theologian of Israel of his day, that he must, as an old man, be born again if he is to be saved and to see the eternal kingdom of God. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to share with people. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Now, by the way, I realize I haven't explained terms like salvation, rebirth, and so on, because Space and time is short in something like this truth talk. But I have written extensively on it. And if you want to find that, just log on to truthistheword.com. And if you just type into the search engine, born again, or the word rebirth, you will find a very detailed article on this. The main point of this truth talk is not to teach doctrine, you see but to point out just the following two things. One, the focus of Easter is the man on the middle cross, the man in the middle, and his invitation to all who will listen. And two, the most effective and compellingly simple way of applying the Easter message to religious people and agnostics is to explain who Jesus really is, that the Bible is reliable, and that what it records of what Jesus said and did is of the utmost significance and importance to them. However, and it's a big however, there's one more thing I must point out before I end. It's this. The anointing of the Holy Spirit in this whole process of explaining and interacting with people is vital. It is the Holy Spirit who breathes life into our words and backs them up with the convicting clarity and power in the heart of the one who's listening. This is why Paul wrote, my, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may rest and rely, not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Maybe there'd be a word of prophecy to the person. Maybe you reach out a hand and heal him of something in Jesus' name. But even without those tangible outward manifestations, 
there is the convicting, convincing power of the Holy Spirit who comes into a person who's hearing the truth, for Jesus is the truth, the way and the life, and brings it to life in them and causes an absolute faith to well up where they say, I believe. Remember, the man in the middle, the one in whom we believe, is the real focus of Easter. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth talks.